0: Hi there, and welcome to the podcast, Life as a, a show intently focused on exploring and unearthing the details of professions and the people behind them. I'm your host, Christopher Schoenwald. When considering global enterprise and what specific corporations do, it's easy to get fixated on the basic service or product they provide. Nike makes shoes, Amazon operates an online marketplace service, Microsoft makes software. However, we all know that such global conglomerates are involved in more, much more as far as operations and services go. Take a company like Panasonic, for example. It has over 260,000 employees and roughly 580 subsidiaries around the world involved in the production and selling of a wide range of products and services, including air conditioners, refrigerators, lighting, television, personal computers, mobile phones, audio equipment, cameras, broadcasting equipment, semiconductors, bicycles, and so on. Now, keeping a multinational corporation like that on track and aligned is no simple task it requires a certain degree of sophistication involving effective governance and strategy. To add to the complexity is the fact that these companies exist in markets that are themselves in a constant state of their own flux, as driven by hyper-connected economies. Within the last several years, it is this last point which has driven corporations to innovate and adapt as far as finding more effective ways to navigate this ever-changing landscape. What have they done, you ask? What has been their proverbial ace in the hole to handle all of this? Well, without a question, part of the answer surely lies with the enhanced role of corporate general counsel, as well as a larger voice from legal and compliance experts. Now, it's rare to get a peek into how such a mechanism exercises itself and extends influence in a major multinational corporation. However, our esteemed guest today will provide all of that, and I suspect much more. Lawrence Bates has provided legal counsel for over three decades to some of the largest business entities in Japan. He has held executive-level positions at General Electric and the Lixil Group Corporation over that time. Most recently, he served as managing executive officer, general counsel, chief risk management officer, and chief compliance officer for Panasonic Corporation. A position and role in which he was the first appointed non Japanese board member in the company's illustrious history. Lawrence's impressive communicative skills, that being fluency in both Mandarin Chinese and Japanese, coupled with a stellar educational background with degrees from Yale University and Harvard Law School, set Lawrence on a path not many have trailblazed through. Lawrence's deep knowledge, awareness, and passion relating to legal and compliance issues has helped bring those points to the forefront of the companies he has served within. In fact, in one case, this recognition amounted to a rare act within a listed Japanese company, that being the establishment of a new executive position centered on legal and compliance issues, of which Larry was naturally appointed to. Outside of his corporate career, Lawrence has also been active in many other respects. He has taught international economic law on the faculty of law at Tokyo University, and has been an active member of the Tokyo expat community, holding the presidency of the ACCJ, American Chamber of Commerce Japan, in 2013. Lawrence has also engaged with the Japan-based Lawyers for LGBT and Allies Network to promote marriage equality in Japan, the only country in the G7 that does not fully recognize same-sex partnerships. And with all that in mind, Lawrence, welcome.
1: Thank you very much, Chris. It's a pleasure to be here. And uh, please do call me Larry uh, going forward. I'm sure I was just
0: about to, to, to ask you about that. All right, will do. Yeah, it's an honor to have you on. So without further ado, why don't we get right into things? Sure. All right. Well, the first segment is something called Coloring Wikipedia. And as my listeners would know, it's basically a segment where I just read off a definition of the profession, what the guest does. Um, I like to do it for a couple of reasons. One, it brings everyone up to speed. And then two, I think it offers like a nice jumping off point for the guest to kind of examine, you know, the, the the way the position is presented, at least as far as Wikipedia and how they go about it. And sometimes there's things that are underrepresented. Sometimes things are missing and it just gets the discussion kick off. So in recognizing many of your professional titles, I did go with a, a catch-all of general counsel. But perhaps from there, we can weave in some of the other equally important uh, titles and roles that you've had along the way. Does that sound good?
1: Sounds perfect.
0: All right. Well, here we go. General counsel. A general counsel, chief counsel, or chief legal officer, CLO, is the chief lawyer of a legal department, usually in a company or a governmental department. Duties involve overseeing and identifying the legal issues in all departments and their interrelation, including engineering, design, marketing, sales, distribution, credit, finance, human resources, and production, as well as corporate governance and business policy. This would naturally require, in most cases, reporting directly to the owner or CEO overseeing the very business on which the CLO is expected to be familiar with and advise on the most confidential level. This requires the CLO or general counsel to work closely with each of the other officers and their departments to appropriately be aware and advise. A bit of a mouthful, admittedly, but within the context of what you've done and perhaps your most recent role, how well does Wikipedia fare on this, Larry?
1: Well, I actually think it fares pretty well. Um, Covers most of the bases. I guess if I had two reactions to it where I might improve it, and maybe that's something i think about it. Advise, I think, was the word that was used at one point. And, you know, I think that's part of it. But I think the idea of a general counsel uh, or a chief legal officer, which I use somewhat interchangeably, I've had both titles in my career, is really to have an equal seat with the other executive management at the decision-making table on a strategic level. You utilizing all those skills that you just mentioned from a legal perspective and a broader business perspective. So I would say it's a it's playing an active part in business decision making, leveraging those skills. And I guess the other one thing that might be missing from that rather broad list is public policy or government relations, the idea that one should use one's legal skills in, in helping to shape the business policy environment externally, because in the end, that is also all about law. So I guess those would be the two comments I I might make on that otherwise excellent
0: definition. Okay, well, uh, it's good to hear Wikipedia doesn't often uh, do so well, (laughs) from my experience on this program. So it's nice to hear that they uh, are on point for this one, at least. Really quickly, we'll probably get into this uh, later on in the conversation. But in terms of this role, and I alluded to this in the uh, in the bio and in reading it off, there is the the enhanced role of some of these you know responsibilities. Is that something that uh, that you've noticed over the last say five to ten years?
1: Well, definitely uh, here in Japan, but it started I think really in the United States um, mm-hmm. back in the nineteen eighties, around the time that I was graduating from law school, where I think the in-house general counsel position even there. Was considered a bit of a back office operation, and not really up front at the business decision making table. The first company I joined, GE, and its general counsel Ben Ben Heineman, I think, really changed the nature of all of that in the United States to make it what I think Wikipedia and I would now describe. But I think in Japan the change has been uh, tremendous uh, in recent years, and there's still perhaps a long way to go. But in Japan in particular, there was no concept of a general counsel role until very recently. And I think many listed companies still do not have such a role, or if they do have a legal role, it often reports indirectly, as was traditionally the case here in Japan, through another function like the CFO or the CHRO or chief operations officer or planning. So I think it's changed a lot, and there's a much greater recognition of the need for it, but it's still not at the same level as you would see or expect, I think, in most American or European companies.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, it's encouraging, I suppose, that, like you said, that there is some change taking place and. In- perhaps, you know, through some of your experiences and what you've seen, and even what you've contributed to that as well, I'm sure is probably helping. Like I said, I used the word trailblazing. I didn't uh, choose that word randomly. I think there is something to that, perhaps. And, uh, you know, in a corporation such as Panasonic, your most recent company that you've been working for, yeah, I'm sure that gets out within the industry and uh, it has the power of at least making people think or, or consider, you know, different ways of doing things.
1: Well, and I think that the globalization of Japanese companies themselves, as they've you know expanded into dozens, if not more markets across the globe, have encountered the same types of you know, legal and compliance challenges that their American and European counterparts have long been accustomed to. And I think to ultimately be successful and competitive and have an upper hand in many of these situations as good corporate citizens, that has really propelled change in Japan, where I think there wasn't necessarily always a strong enforcement driver here in Japan itself.
0: Right, right. Oh, that's really interesting. Okay. Well, I would like to transition to another question really quickly here. Again, your most recent work has been with Panasonic, and as far as like some of these other roles and responsibilities you've had. What would be, I mean, this might be an impossible question, but what would be like a typical day for you, you know, or a typical week, perhaps maybe that's a little bit easier.
1: Well, these other roles being within Panasonic or generally over the...
0: Yeah, sorry, within Panasonic.
1: Yeah. So the other roles that I've had within Panasonic at the same time have been, as you mentioned very kindly in your introduction, chief risk officer, chief compliance officer, a member of the board, you know, and member of the group strategy meeting as a management, managing executive So, day to day, I'm wearing different hats in what I'm doing within the company, but I think it all kind of fits broadly within that definition of general counsel that that we talked about at the very beginning. I think the general counsel has to be strategic and maybe the one thing I left out, but also has to be a bit of a guardian of the company's reputation. And, you know, I think putting me in the board level. When I joined the company, I think it was a pretty significant statement by top-level management that the importance of legal and compliance has really grown in Japan in a global company such as this. And so I have to play a role there that's a little bit different day-to-day than what I do on an operational basis, you know, in terms of strategy and really making key fundamental decisions for the direction of the company. But day to day, you know, my biggest priorities over the past four years have been how to really build a compliance, global infrastructure, the human resources and the organization around that. And really, you would be surprised perhaps that the role of general counsel contains as much human resource uh, work as it does, because building the organization and the people are critically important.
0: Yeah, most definitely. And I guess, I mean, again, stepping into that position, which I'd mentioned as well, didn't really exist before you moved into it. I'm sure there was a lot of feeling out, not only on your behalf, but probably within internally, the people that you're working with and, and how their roles are attached to your responsibilities and so on and so forth. I'm sure there was a lot of give and take there and feeling each other out. And,
1: and, and I, th- I think compliance, you know, might have been a fundamental driver in the first instance, which is why we added the title of Chief Compliance Officer to the General Counsel title. Yeah. I think, in my view, compliance is fundamentally a role of the General Counsel in any case, okay. but Panasonic had a recent history in the early 2000s of experiences, in a negative sense, with global cartels and competition law issues, and more recently, a Foreign Corrupt Practices Act bribery issue involving an avionics subsidiary in the United States. So, you know, there was, I think, a top level recognition that there needed to be a different or an additional voice at the table with the right employees that had not been there before.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think that uh, that paints a much clearer picture for a lot of listeners. I know it does for me. So thank you for sharing that. Sure, sure. Perhaps we could transition into a new segment here. Basically, we can continue this back and forth uh, in a Q&A discovery. And the first question I have here is within the context of this talk, you know, I was thinking that maybe we could get a quick overview, you know, of some of your backstory, of your journey, of what led you into, you know, all this professional success that you've experienced across your career, particular moments or experiences that in reflection now were, you know, critical junctures perhaps leading to, uh, to present day and where you've ended up essentially. Could you speak to that?
1: Well, I think, you know, I joined General Electric back in 1992 by, you know, on the basis of a call from a recruiter five days after I had been witnessing on Japanese national television, a story about uh, a bribery case at then uh, General Electric's medical systems subsidiary um, here in Tokyo. And, you know, I had not. Thought about joining a corporation when I originally studied law and had and was working in a law firm, but wanted to combine it with my, you know, cultural skills and language skills. And the more I talked about it, the role seemed incredibly interesting. But during the course of setting up the culture, when I eventually joined the company and working with the business management, there were some really kind of eye-opening, distressing moments where. Could we in Asia and including in Japan really operate business in the way that an American company kind of was used to and expected from a compliance standard and in particular related to entertainment and all those types of issues? And, you know, I had a few sleepless nights and lots of discussions with sales managers and business management as to how we were going to kind of unearth every risk touch point and, you know, deal with it in the appropriate risk management way to prevent kind of thing from happening again. And and I guess the reward for me was when many years later, one of the sales managers, the key sales manager, at one point later in my career became my boss, said to me that he, on his retirement party, he said, you know, to everyone that, the thing that really differentiated the company in his mind from the competition, and that became a winning advantage, was having this kind of, you know, compliance or integrity DNA in our system that whereby customers in these difficult sectors would trust over the competition. And to hear the business person say that was perhaps the biggest possible reward I could have. Uh, had for my efforts over those years
0: yeah 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 no most definitely i mean it would seem to me that like that type of work would be you know a marriage made in heaven essentially i mean just japanese culture being as risk-averse as it is you know the need for you know people looking out every possible thing that could go wrong it would seem that that would be a, a strong environment for these types of departments to, to really take hold but from what i'm gathering it's been developing over the over the course of time but it, it surprises me to a certain extent that it wasn't as well developed early on, if if that makes sense.
1: Well, I, I think there's a number of things that could be said to that. It's a really important point that you're raising there. I you know, if you look at how business developed in Japan in the period, you know, post-war in particular, it was a big enough market where people could basically deal with one another based on trust without Detailed contracts. There was this notion in the government of administrative guidance, and everybody just kind of follows um, what the government might guide. But as Japanese companies uh, expanded overseas, you know, I think they sometimes ran into trouble. And at the same time, they were very risk averse. So when they met this trouble, they would back off and go completely the wrong way. So I think it kind of cut both ways. And companies over time came to realize that, you know, there needed to be a balanced way to consider how to take risk and manage it without, you know, throwing the baby away with bathwater, so to speak. And so I think that's where there's been an increasing role of the importance of a strategic legal player in the organization.
0: Right. Essentially like smart risk-taking, basically. One would hope. Yeah. One would hope. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I do have another question here. And in researching this talk, I came across an interview in which you broke down the difference as far as role and responsibility between an in-house lawyer and a lawyer at a law firm. And I'll be the first to admit, I'm somebody who's not within legal affairs. I mean, this is not my area of expertise at all, <laughs> but uh, your answer in this interview was really interesting. And I thought it'd be you know great for listeners to hear it as well. Perhaps you could speak to that point.
1: Well, I don't, First of all, I don't want to say anything negative about the lives or careers of people in law firms because so many of my classmates uh, from law school have pursued excellent careers. And you know, as an in-house lawyer, I need the expertise that I can find uh, in the best law firm situation. So it's very much of a symbiotic relationship. But to me, when I talk to people about coming in-house, which was traditionally not considered to be a desirable career from a elite law school background, you know, I emphasize a few points. And one of those points is is what has really appealed to me most during the course of my career has been the ability to be close to the decision making, which again goes back to the definition we were talking about at the beginning. Often a client will come to you in a law firm and only share with you what they think they have to share with you in order to minimize their legal cost, And that can be a very frustrating process. And often it can be done at the spur of the moment where they expect an answer tomorrow. Can't say that I've never been guilty of doing that as the lawyer, but that then makes the management of one's lifestyle, I think, in a service firm, like a law firm. And this goes to some extent, I think, in public relations firms, accounting firms as well. It makes it much more difficult to manage. And so I emphasize that though we work incredibly hard inside of a company in these roles, we do have much more visibility to our calendar and ultimately more control over our lives. And and so I think those are some of the key differences that I've seen in law firms versus in-house positions over the years that has made it, I think, easier to attract people To these in-house positions despite different compensation
0: structures right right and also too like i think you just at the top of that you alluded to to a degree i mean that that point of being involved in the decision-making process i mean there has to be a certain level of reward as well in that like personal satisfaction you know where your voice is heard and then you're seeing a company take a you know particular stance or a, a position on one particular issue and then seeing how that unfolds and obviously if it goes in the right way i mean there's going to be some satisfaction there. And even if it doesn't, I mean, you're, you're learning and growing in different ways, I suppose. There's a, a different degree of attachment, I guess, is what I'm trying to get at there.
1: Well, I think you're absolutely right. And, and you own the issue, for better or worse. Yeah, um, You may live with it for years, and you've got to deal with all the consequences from it. So I think it makes you take a, a really strong upfront sense of responsibility for it. And, you know, I've always said about lawyers, they should at least be in their position for three years, whatever their position is, because you do need to see what the consequences of what you did might be, and then learn from those.
0: Well said, well said. Okay, excellent. I do have another question here. And this is kind of within the context of, you know, culture, I guess. And we'd already mentioned, you've mentioned, you know, working for an American firm, obviously, GE, and then, you know, having a big portion of your career within Asia, within Japan, and for some Japanese corporations. So how would you define your roles within this context of culture? I'm sure there must have been some very different, you know, sort of experiences, perhaps in this position in GE, you're expected to do A, B, and C. This exact same position, say, within any of the Japanese corporations you've involved with, maybe those roles or expectations were slightly different. I'd love to hear a little bit more about that.
1: Well, well, much of it is cultural. And of course, the U.S., Is the, you know, far and away the opposite extreme from Japan in some respects, being the most litigious country by far, say, in the world. And so I think the role of lawyers, at least in that respect, is long well understood. Although I think this notion of a strategic general counsel is even there relatively new. But that's one thing. And I think having aggressive, Enforcement by government regulators is another factor, and that government regulation extends globally. There's an American mindset that, you know, our U.S. laws should apply everywhere, and that's a little bit unique. And of course, but there was a, a structural difference as well, which was my role in Japan or in Asia in GE for those many years was at the Asia or Japan level. And so I was... You know, often on the receiving side of what were very established policies, that somehow I was expected to implement in a very different cultural context, right. Yeah. right? And so that was always a very interesting challenge as to how we could, you know, grow in Asia with the right policies that would then in turn shape what the GE global policies.
0: I don't mean to put you on the spot. Is there like a specific example that would come to mind of something like this? You know, in, in the US, G, for example, saying, well, we need this accomplished. And then you're taking this on. And well, you know, culturally speaking, this is going to be a big lift here. And maybe maybe there are ways that you did accomplish that. Or sometimes you just had to politely educate, you know, that the US office, that this is probably not the best course of action or, or track. Perhaps. Well,
1: in many ways. I mean, in implementing an anti bribery program, for example. And in the end, you may have to do these things and figure out how to do them in the right way under the law because the US law does apply globally. But in those days, I think it was kind of thought that your third party distributors and sales agents, if you were just telling them what they needed to do in their contract to keep you out of trouble, at least if you were doing that, you were going to be okay. But of course, the law says much more than, which is that you've got to do your due diligence and make sure they're, in fact, not violating the terms that are in those contracts. But how do you go, you know, a low base to that highly desired base with a new policy that comes out dictating that overnight? So you've got to have a risk-prioritized way that is culturally sensitive with training materials that... Basically explain to your sales staff, to your third-party distributors and sales agents, you know, why we need to do this in places as remote as Indonesia, India, which is what I remember was was a huge challenge. But that's just one example of many. Going back to the question now, then transitioning to, you know, Japanese companies and being in a kind of C-suite position. I was able to kind of look at it from an entirely different perspective which was to draw on that huge amount of material you know that a company like GE had put in place globally right. and write on a blank slate what this program should look like in a modified way for a global Japanese company and to really kind of engage with people starting at senior most management including the CEO to help drive that down of course that's a never ending process and so forth but you know there were simply not policies that were global in most of these areas that the companies would get into trouble on so it was a it was a a, a completely different perspective and then how do you marry that with the laws and regulations in the many other countries which are the subsidiaries of these japanese companies but You know, that's really been the excitement and drawing on the U.S. with its very extreme litigious kind of detailed case precedent culture. It's not exactly what you take lock, stock and barrel and put it in a Japanese company, but it really provides a tremendous framework for where the world is moving toward overall. And so that's really been valuable.
0: When, when that was taking place, was there initial, from your experiences, perhaps like initial resistance within the Japanese or from the Japanese side towards this? i mean, like, well, this culturally speaking is not going to fit. It's not going to work. Of course, you're trying to sell it and trying to say, well, we're going to have to shift it or change it this way or that way to make it work, to make it fit. But in, in terms of initial resistance or were they welcoming to it? Oh, this is great. This is what we need to do. This is what we should use this as a base or a model and then, you know, modify from there. I'd be curious to hear that.
1: Well, I think another cultural difference in u s and, and Japanese business organizations is, and I'm not saying that Americans don't want to do the right thing, but I think what Americans do is often governed by law and this very complex legal system that we have. Whereas I think in Japan, there is what I would call, there's always exceptions, but a very strong natural sense of wanting to do the right thing and it's often that they don't have the infrastructure behind them to identify what the risk is in the first place and to have materials to mitigate and avoid that risk. And so it's not people making mistakes because for the most part, they're out there deliberately drawing from the till or what have you, you know, and being corrupt, but that they really are walking into a situation where they don't realize they're doing the wrong thing. And so what that's leading me to is, you know, I think the advantage that a company like GE had was that you had tremendous infrastructure with the budget that goes around that to put in place the systems that would enable, you know, the risk mitigation that I'm talking about. And so I think the hardest thing in Japanese companies has been not getting that initial understanding that seems okay because people understand when it's explained, but really how do we you know quantify that and monetize it and build that into the ongoing budget process? It like any business endeavor, it requires investment.
0: Yeah. And it sounds like a lot of education as well. (laughs) Just educating, educating, educating. I'm sure that was a big, just listening to that explanation. I was just thinking like that was probably a big, big part of your job in those days. And perhaps even, you know.
1: It has been from day one right up until today.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. All right. Well, I do have another question here. And to this point, you know, admittedly, we've been speaking a lot about the, the professional side of things, but I'd like to kind of transition over maybe to the personal to a certain degree. I'd be curious about the impact of this profession, what it's had on you personally. What has it offered you from a general life and living standpoint? Maybe we could start there.
1: Well, one thing that's always amazed me during my career is how many classmates and others who I know who are in the law are genuinely not happy with their roles or their lives. And I hear that over and over again, not universally. And many people are very happy, of course. But I hear enough of it that I sort of wonder what's behind it. And I must say that in my 30 years as an in-house counsel, I mean, there are the bad days and the tough days and the long days. But, you know, I've always been happy that I've woken up in the morning, you know, excited about what is the day ahead and, you know, always having a feeling that if I pick up any newspaper, and this was true both in GE and it's true in Panasonic, because both of them are conglomerate structures, very highly diversified, as you mentioned at the beginning, in many industries, you can't read any article about business or about law without thinking about how does it apply to the work I'm doing or to the businesses I'm helping, which then leads into a whole public policy aspect as well. So on the positive side, I just have to say, you know, I've always been passionate and positive about my work, especially since I left the law firms that I was in for the first five or six of my life, so though, I, though I had very good basic learning experiences there as well.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, it sounds like, I mean, that's probably fueled much of your success is probably to a degree that outlook, you know, that, that, that way of examining your career, perhaps, and, you know, connecting it up, you know, as far as, like you said, reading the newspapers understanding what your role is and how things are shifting and changing and how that's going to impact what you're doing on a day-to-day basis. And then that's every day, there's a bit of challenge in that perhaps, but also excitement as well, I would assume being attached to that because there's new possibilities. There's new ways of going about things, analyzing things, so on and so forth. So yeah, I could see that.
1: Well, and, and it's that excitement and passion that I think ultimately also reinforce your ability to succeed when you're talking about tough subjects and investments that have to be made and, you know, things that may not be initially welcome as suggestions. It's, I think that excitement and passion are are very important.
0: It's the fuel, essentially, right? Right. Okay, well said. You know, conversely, I mean, the negative side, I mean, there's always two sides of the coin, obviously. Has there been anything on that side of thing that's kind of trickled down into your personal life where, you know, it's been a bit of a challenge at times, perhaps the hours, travel, Again, in these cultural dynamics, anything there?
1: Well, in a global job, Japan is probably one of the worst places in the world to be based from the perspective of time zone management and telephone calls and travel. Right. So you've got to be, you've got to understand. I think in any global job you're going to have based from Japan, that you're going to have calls around the clock. And you can manage it to some extent. And, you know, you try to accommodate other people's schedules, and they try to accommodate yours. But that's always going to be a downside. As far as the traveling goes, you know, I probably have more travel in my Lixel and Panasonic roles being true global positions compared to what I had at GE, which were Asia. And that sometimes has been tough. Uh, We've had the pandemic for the past two years. So that's gone completely the other direction, but fortunate because of the travel to have built up trust with stakeholders around the globe. I knew who the people were. And I think that makes the virtual world then a little bit easier to deal with. I do worry a little bit about people joining in the middle of this environment and not having that same background. I think the travel, is some is a part of the job, given my love of culture and love of language, how to put it together, that's been a real plus, even though sometimes it's a bit much.
0: Excellent. Okay, very good. Um, another question here. Uh, and then something again, I referenced when I introduced you, your years and in involvement with the uh, the ACCJ, the American Chamber of Commerce Japan, and in 2013, you actually held the presidency. I'd be curious to know what spurred you to get involved on that side of things. I mean, it sounds as though you're quite busy just professionally speaking, you know, working for the companies that you did, but, you know, taking on that role and responsibility. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that.
1: Well, you know, I think that when I first joined GE for the first six or seven years, I was in the medical systems now called healthcare business. And that, as you know, is a very highly regulated business with lots of, um, government policy around it and issues related to how you can sell your products in any market, but including Japan. And so we had a lot of challenges as a foreign uh, provider figuring out you know, how to do things on an equal footing. And so I got involved in the ACCJ early in the 1990s when I joined GE, realizing that it was a great opportunity to not only network, but to actually Put out papers and talk to government officials and work with industry to positively change the environment in a way that would make it easier to do business. And, and I came to realize that that was also fundamentally related to my kind of skills as a lawyer, because in the end, you know a lawyer deals with laws, and those were the kinds of things that we were trying to influence and to, and to shape so you know, as I got deeper into it and learned the issues that other companies were facing in other industries, and of course GE with, with many different corporate interests, well, one thing led to the other. And you know, for better or worse, my company had already decided I was a Japan specialist, so I was not going back to the United States and also personal considerations for that. And this was a way to grow in Japan, my business, my personal leadership skills kind of in synergy with what I was doing on the business side. So it's a great organization. And, and you know, I strongly recommend it to anybody who is, is thinking about how to further broaden and develop their career.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Was there any particular moments or experiences there, examples even of things that have stood out, stand out even now in reflecting?
1: Many things, actually. But as in the year that I was president in 2013, I remember having a, a call from a gentleman in the US Trade Representative Office in Washington one morning saying, you know, that the United States and Japan had agreed to, that Japan would participate equally in the Trans-Pacific Partnership process, which of course has gone not exactly anywhere since uh, 2016. But that was just an incredible moment because we had been working on it. It was just the time that the Abe administration had come in with its autonomics program and there was lots of constructive dialogue about making changes that would that would make both American and Japanese products more competitive in each other's countries and the rest of Asia and in a way that would hopefully bring China into the fold one day. But, you know, things have sort of taken a turn in another direction. They sure
0: have. But yeah, but I do recall as well, I mean, there was a lot of optimism around that.
1: Highly exciting... Um, ways to be engaged with the business community and with the government here more broadly.
0: Yeah. Okay. Excellent. Well, I do have one more question here within this segment. Again, in researching for this, I came across an article in online publication that is actually out in Japan in which you and your husband, Paul, detail the origins of your relationship and, you know, formation of your family. And of course, I mean, it was a very beautiful piece, I might add, but I'm curious here, like what comp- yeah, what, what compelled you to, to share such you know, intimate you know, stories and reflections?
1: Well, you know, Paul and I had met when I was still working for a law firm in China back in 1988. And it was circumstances of the time that drew us both to Japan rather than my going back to New York with the law firm I was with, and we both had some background in Japan. And kind of unexpected, though, that we would both end up developing our careers 30 years and lives here in Japan. And, you know, I think uh, in, the, in the early 1990s, it was still very early for people to be talking openly about their, their same-sex relationships. And that most companies did not have policies protecting that status. There were certainly not laws protecting it. There were no immigration advantages to enable partners to move together. There still unfortunately really isn't that in Japan, but one thing led to the other, and the world started to change and uh, my company started to change, and you know there were health care benefits for u s employees, and I had to apply for those, so that was something I had to say. I also had to be able to explain why i you know. Very practically could not just pick up and take a position in the United States because I have a partner here and what is he going to do and so there are practical sides of it but then I learned but then I learned that as I started to come out to more and more people that I could be much more authentic in my in my responsibilities as a leader inside of the company in talking more openly to my colleagues and to the people who work for me, and to be more credible as a person. And I think that was a very valuable lesson for me. And then I guess the last thing I would say about that is that my when we finally made the decision to have children, and my first son was born in 2011, we had gotten married in California in 2008. You know, it was just beyond the question of any doubt yeah, as to how open we could be. For the sake of the children, as well as our family as a whole, you know, we made a decision that we needed to be completely open. So I think all those things, some of them are practical, some of them were, you know, related to my leadership. And by the way, it's a never ending process that, you know, you constantly find situations where you're still coming out to people who don't
0: know. Um, Right, right. Well, how lovely, though. I mean, you're very well explained. I would imagine... The position that you were holding, how inspirational that was as well to others, you know, seeing that that had to have been part of it as well. I'm I'm assuming whether or not that's something you intended for or considered, but I'm sure that most definitely would have had an effect on others.
1: Well, so that would definitely, and thank you for saying that, was what really got me to be more personally involved in the marriage equality effort and this ACCJ viewpoint that was ultimately put out on promoting That in Japan, which you alluded to at the beginning. And just then, in addition to that, feeling or being out there for people to see and to do interviews like this or what have you, so that people can see there's a there's a future in the professional world and whatever profession they're in, but they have to figure out themselves. But there's others out there, hopefully, they can go to for support and recognize that it's possible.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you again for sharing that. Truly believe, you know, that it is inspirational for a lot of people and hopefully listeners as well for this program right now, you know, can take something away from that, that point that you just shared. So yeah. Thank you again. Thank you. Well, let's move into a new segment here, something called a water cooler story. And basically here, I just ask guests to indulge listeners with a story relating to the profession. And uh, yeah, we're really anxious to hear what you've got for us, Larry.
1: Well, I think I actually maybe jumped the gun on it and described it as a misinterpretation of an earlier question. But I mentioned the situation I had in GE where I really kind of had endless years of discussion to put in place the right compliance infrastructure, mitigate that type of risk. And the proof was in the pudding, not just with that retirement story that I mentioned, but we actually had another kind of range. By local police six years later, after the first case, which was obviously scary to all of us. And the employees that were being questioned by the police, you know, three nights in a row until the stroke of midnight, they were absolutely confident that they had done nothing wrong and could explain the policies that we had put in place. There was no more than a cup of coffee offered to these government officials when they had to visit the offices and, you know, to hear them say that so confidently when we would debrief them was something that really made me feel, feel great and good for the company. And in the end, you know, thank you very much for your cooperation and move on and to see people who are not, you know, experts in the law, but be able to explain things in such a convincing way to these authorities who were asking them these questions.
0: Pretty intense pressure that they would have been under as well. I mean, explaining it in just normal circumstances could be a challenge for anyone imagining, but in that type of spotlight. mm, Yeah.
1: (laughs) Well, that was one of the water cooler stories that I wanted to share. I'm sure. If you give me a minute, I could come up with another one as well. But I jumped the gun.
0: Ah, no, no, no problems at all. Well, maybe really to put you on the spot a little bit here. You know, I understand that your your time, you know, within Panasonic is is drawing to a close. Have there been any moments within that corporation that have stood out? You know, most recently, perhaps in the last year, even as as you've reflected on your career as a whole, maybe something from there you could go with. So. I
1: stepped down from my executive position on March 31st, remained a director until June. But the big change that happened on April 1st, we've really been working on for a couple of years, which is this transformation uh, to a holding company, operating company structure, where we've taken each of the business segments and put them into separate operating subsidiaries of holding company. And how to structure that, to give them more autonomy, to become more, more competitive, hopefully, in each of their business segments, more profitable, if we look at Chinese and Korean competition in many of these areas. But to do that in a way where the legal function, completely unlike when I joined Panasonic four years ago, has an equal seat at the table with finance and HR as the key governance function. Starting at the holding company level with the CEO, and then at each level below that, as something which is totally accepted by management within the company now. That makes it absolutely critical, I think, to make this holding company operating company structure successful because you need to have that governance overlay at the same time while you're delegating this kind of decision making. So to to hear people talk about legal and the general counsel. And the people who report or reported to me in that way is a real sense of, of accomplishment. Most forward.
0: definitely, most definitely. Yeah, it kind of returns to that point of, you know, probably a lot of things that you were educating them on, you know, early on. And when you probably took that position and then to hear them, you know, spouting these things back or amongst each other, finally, yeah, I, I, how could that not be?
1: It's a very iterative process. I mean, I've
0: done a lot of learning and listening
1: and, the, you know, in that process to come up, hopefully, yeah. with the right governance system
0: as well. Yeah, well, it sounds like you were quite successful in that uh, in that endeavor, so good for you. All right, well, thank you for sharing that, Larry. We are rounding the bend here into our last segment, actually, our crystal ball segment. as the name implies, we're looking forward to the future, usually trends, predictions, so on and so forth. And I want to start with this here. I mean, your position at Panasonic came about partly through this push of investors to, uh, to do away with the previous position of corporate advisor which to my understanding was largely symbolic in nature and held by past presidents. Now, ostensibly, the reason for this move, of course, was to bring corporate governance in line with international norms and also to introduce, as I think you said, you know, outside voices essentially. Now, here's the question: I mean, do you see moves like this within Japan as far as large-scale enterprise going? Do you see this continuing, or do you think that this steadfast pull towards tradition and history is still continuing to impede reforms like this in other major corporations?
1: Well, I think it will continue, but I'd step back for a second. And in terms of, you know, I think Panasonic bringing me into the company, I do think that was part of a broader corporate governance transformation that Panasonic's been on for several years. But I think there was a specific need with respect to legal and compliance that, you know, was, was separate from that corporate advisor structure question as well. But there were many aspects to that. I, I think it'll continue. I mean, my, in my own company, uh, my successor, Ms. Shotoku, has also been nominated to a board seat. You know, I think there's a continuing recognition that the legal, the general counsel should be, uh, should have a seat on the board along with the CFO. And some of the other key leaders. So I think that's in our company. But I think if you just look at the expectations of ESG investors and the areas of emerging risk that they're focused on, whether it's the China US relationship and trade sanctions and trade controls, bribery, competition law, data privacy with new software based business models, supply chain issues, and the human rights questions. Around all of that, um, I think it's regulators are moving in you know towards stronger enforcement. you have customers who are putting these types of provisions in our contracts that say you know you've got to be responsible for these issues in your supply chain the the standard just gets higher and higher, so I don't think it's possible for companies that want to operate competitively globally to to retreat fast, they will be compelled to move forward in an environment where Japan itself, you know, doesn't necessarily enforce as many laws as strictly as, as are done overseas. But, you know, I think it's got to go in the continuing direction of better. mm
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it's kind of my job to overthink things, I guess, but, uh, Yeah, when I was just considering this question and just understanding and being in Japan for nearly 20 years now, you know, some would say at times, the pace of change can be glacial for certain matters. But the way you just described it makes, you know, complete and clear sense. Of course, I mean, it's I think I even alluded to this in the opening where it's, you know, things are changing, as you just said, you know, globally, internationally, standards, norms, expectations. And you're right. I mean, for like this global economy and for Japanese corporations to remain competitive, they really don't have a choice in this matter, really, like they very have small, to.
1: Very, yeah. very small example, but, you know, just look at the pandemic over the last two years and how Japanese companies have, I mean, mine included, transitioned so quickly to doing all types of meetings, including board meetings, yeah. uh, virtually Um by Teams or Zoom or Webex or what have you, that is something, especially in Japan, which values the personal relationships as much as it does. One would have never imagined, I think, happening so quickly. So I think there's actually, I mean, for those of us who are here a long time, uh, we have long memories and we realize the difficulty of some things that have taken much longer to change than they should have. the The marriage equality issue is something that comes to mind, but you know things do change here at the right moment if we keep pushing in the right direction.
0: Okay. I'd like to close out with one final question here. Do you see any uh, other compliance issues that are coming down the line, perhaps, uh, you know, to ensure the competitiveness of, of Japanese corporations, perhaps you just answered that in your previous, you know, answer there, but is there anything else that, you know, you could speak to relating to this?
1: I do think those are the big ones. You know, the, there's what I call the old staples of competition law and uh, anti-bribery, but I think you know, the trade sanctions and trade controls issues, I mean, certainly the Russia-Ukraine war adds to that, but it's already pre-existing with the relationship with China and the challenges of that with the United States. So that's going to be an increasing issue. And I think, as I said, ESG stakeholders, are really looking closely at supply chains in all their dimensions. So I think the compliance issues there are really important. And data privacy, as we use more AI tools and we everything, every product line that you can think of is now becoming more digitally driven as a business model and collection of data is just so incredibly important. That's something we've all got to watch and work on proactively as well.
0: Most definitely. Well said. All right, Larry. Well, I must say it's been a riveting talk and I've thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed all of this. I mean, the time has just flown and, uh, you know, I thank you immensely for your time and for joining the program today.
1: Well, thank you. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks for the opportunity.
0: Now, for those interested in learning more about Larry and his work, you can find and connect with him via LinkedIn. There will be a link for this in the show notes. And of course, if you like today's show, please be sure to share. All of that stuff does help. And of course, you can rate, review, and subscribe wherever you access your podcasts. And while you're at it, head on over to YouTube. We do have a channel there, Life As A, where you catch full video episodes of the conversations like we had today with Larry. And the interesting thing here is the, the first two to three minutes, four minutes, perhaps, we'll have a slideshow of imagery related to the talk. So yeah, head on over there. If you do, please be sure to subscribe. And finally, don't forget to join us on the next episode of Life As A, where we'll continue to explore and unearth the details of professions and the people behind them. I'm your host, Christopher Schoenwald. Until next time, stay curious about life and living.